Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Query Show, episode nine. It's a very young adulty day. We're going to look at two young adult queries from Carlin and Melissa. Thank you very much for sending them. And I'm very excited that I have a super exciting announcement. That's a little redundant. I'm excited that it's excited about our first query show author who signed with an agent. So stay tuned after the show and I'll tell you all the exciting news. Plus, I have a really cool program coming up for the patrons on the Patreon, which you are not going to want to miss either. But now to the queries. Let's get started. So our first query comes from Carlin. Thank you, Carlin. I'm going to read the whole query, as always, and then go paragraph by paragraph. Dear Agent, Six years ago, after cystic fibrosis destroyed my sister's lungs, she not only battled for every breath, but she battled for a double lung transplant that she knew could save her life. I stood beside my sister for 120 days and battled insurance companies, hospital policies, and even the transplant committee. It became evident that economics and privilege played a major role in determining who lived and who died on the transplant floor. Air is a young adult novel based on the courage, hope, and heartbreak I witnessed not only in my sister, but other transplant patients as they fought for a second chance at life. The story begins the day 13-year-old Trigg is transferred into the hospital room across from Rachel Swenson's. Trigg needs a new heart, but he has not been approved for a transplant. 14-year-old Rachel is listed for a double lung transplant, but a month has passed and no match has been found. The two of them become fast friends. They push blue plastic chairs outside their rooms and talk and draw. They create a comic book together. Trigg draws the pictures, Rachel writes the words. They draw the other kids on the floor, but instead of drawing them as sick, they give them superpowers instead. One snowy night, Rachel convinces Trigg that they should sneak off the floor and go outside. That same night, 300 miles away, a young hockey player is severely injured in a car crash. He is put on life support. That night, the lives of these three characters become forever entwined. Over the past three years, I have written eight young adult novels for publisher, under the name, pen name. My short story, story, won first place in fiction at publication, and my story, story, was a finalist at awards and published in publication last year. My mentor and friend, writer name, suggested that you might be interested in a book like this. Attached are the first 10 pages. Thank you for your time and consideration. Okay, so let's take it from the top. So the first two paragraphs, we learn about this author's history with her sister and cystic fibrosis. I like that this author is coming to their story from a place of compassion and passion. This isn't a writer who's jumping on a trend or dashing off a manuscript. It's genuine. It really means something to them. However, I think this part of the query should be moved to after the plot summary. It's meta info, facts about the book, but not in the book's world. It also makes a nice segue into the author's bio, so a quick copy and paste can remedy that. Next, we have Rachel and Trigg when they meet in the hospital and start drawing comics together. So the content of this paragraph is pretty solid. It shows us what kind of people Rachel and Trigg are, and it has some great concrete visual images in there, like the blue plastic chairs and the comic books. However, the paragraph is missing that good old cause and effect language. Using phrases like, when X, then Y, or after X, character must Y, will help show the like plottiness of the book's setup. There's also the structure of that first sentence to consider. The problem with phrases like the story begins are twofold. 
One, you can't be immersed in the plot if you're thinking about the fact that it is a story. Starting with the action directly makes it easier to plunge into the fictive dream. Two, it's impersonal relative to the characters. No one's making a choice to spring into action, it's just something beginning, almost in a vacuum. So getting rid of that phrase will help a lot. Beyond that, though, I also want a deeper sense of that good old goal, motivation, and conflict. I can intuit both of these characters want a transplant, that's clear even if it's not explicitly stated. And their motivation is fairly straightforward too, they want to live. However, the reader might be even more engaged if that motivation were given some context. Who or what are Rachel and Trigg living for? Friends, parents, hobbies, their eventual dreams for careers in their lives? Adding that in could really help. Now when it comes to conflict, the obvious conflict is that there are no available donors. But I want more of a sense of this conflict, especially given what we know the author's views on the economics of transplants are. Is either one of these characters economically disadvantaged? Is there some kind of ticking clock? Do we know how long each of them can survive without a donor? We just need to know more details. Now we have the snowy night with them sneaking out in the car crash 300 miles away. I love that this paragraph has an almost omniscient point of view. The 300 miles that separate Rachel and Trigg from the hockey player is a powerful way to set up the contrast between how distant these people are initially and how close they will become. But I think this paragraph stops short of showing what the real story is here. And a lot of it hinges on the passive-ish voice of the phrase, become forever entwined. On the one hand, yes, the hands of fate are at work here, and that's the point. On the other, though, how do they become entwined? I'm guessing that the hockey player becomes a donor for Rachel and Trigg, but it's hard to say for sure. We really just don't know. And stopping short also robs us of the fullness of the emotional core here. Remember that the third paragraph should be about that make or break moment, about the instant a character must make a choice. This summary stops before either Rachel or Trigg has to choose anything. And so I'm left wondering what's actually going to happen. What emotional journey are they going to go on? How are their misbeliefs about themselves or about the world going to be challenged and reshaped? I've probably plugged this book before, but even if not, I can't recommend Story Genius by Lisa Cron enough. You don't have to follow all the exercises to understand her theory. The theory being that good novels are all about an emotional undercurrent. Yes, the plot mechanics have to be logical. You have to have that cause and effect. But you also have to have characters whose internal misbeliefs are particularly challenged by those events. So when this author revises, I think they should go back and try to rough out a few of the beats of their characters' emotional arcs to make sure they end up in the query letter. The bio paragraph is great, has information about their previous publications, and even a personal referral, all of which is really excellent. It sticks the landing. Thanks, Carlin! Our second query today comes from Melissa. Thank you, Melissa. Dear Agent, Cerebral palsy, anxiety, and hormones create the perfect recipe to keep 17-year-old Tessa Marino in her father's bakery. She would rather hone her talents as a pastry chef instead of embracing her new Manhattan home or being closer to her brother's successful Shakespearean theater company. 18-year-old Yuki Sato dreams of being an actor. But as the eldest son in a traditional Japanese family, he keeps his passion a secret. That is, until he enters his freshman year at NYU and becomes the bakery's newest employee. When Yuki meets Tessa, while she's hiding from her online soon-to-be ex-boyfriend, neither are expecting to fall in love. 
Tessa has to realize that being disabled doesn't mean she's unworthy of that love, no matter what her anxiety has told her. Yuki grapples with his desire to be an actor and what his culture expects of him. But dreams, like romance, carry consequences, especially when it's up to Tessa, Yuki, and a lovable group of friends to save a musical parody of Hamlet, even if doing so means confronting their fears and risking their future. Our Kind of Perfect is an Own Voices YA contemporary romance complete at 78,000 words. This book will appeal to fans of The Sun is Also a Star and Always Never Yours. I drew on my own experiences with cerebral palsy and anxiety for Tessa's character. I also currently reside north of Manhattan. My writing has previously appeared in nonfiction anthology. When I'm not busy writing, I can usually be found curled up with my cat watching anime. Thank you for your time and consideration. Okay, so take it from the top once again. We meet Tessa Marino working in her father's bakery and having the perfect recipe to stay at home. There's really great work in this first paragraph. We know so much about this protagonist and her world already. Her name, her age, the various forces in her life, her disability, her passion, even her geographical location. And that little bit of flair with the perfect recipe in a story about a bakery is genius. My only real issue here is that the word being in being closer to her brother's successful Shakespearean theater company, it's a little ambiguous. Does that mean literally moving house to be closer to it or just spending more time hanging out there? That could get clarified. Next, we meet Yuki, the actor, who comes to work at the bakery, which the actor in the baker is very dreamy. So with Yuki, too, we get age, passion, conflict, and the premise of a new situation. We have a good sense of who he is as a character, in other words, not just as a person, but an active participant in a story. That's what a character is. His job at the bakery is the perfect opportunity for Sparks to fly, and we can sense that. But I do want to know more about how he ends up there. Working in a bakery is a specialized kind of job. It's not really the kind of on-campus job you might expect a freshman to get. So I wonder, what circumstances drive him to apply to a bakery, and this bakery in particular? Is it near his dorm? Good pay, he's desperate for money? Is he just a good baker? Or, to think of it another way, why doesn't he get a job somewhere else? We want a sense of inevitability here, a sense of motivation behind his choice to work there. Also, I think this ex-boyfriend should get mentioned in Tessa's intro paragraph. If he's going to be an obstacle to our happiness, he needs to be more than just an M-dash aside. It feels kind of jammed in here, and I think the author could find a natural place for it up top. So now we learn about Tessa and Yuki grappling with their various obstacles to love and the musical parody of Hamlet they have to save, which a musical parody of Hamlet is extremely my thing, so I love it. So it's the third paragraph where everything gets squeezed to the breaking point. The author shows a clear sense of the character's problems and goals here, which is great. This story, the emotional arcs, it makes sense, which is no small feat, honestly. You know how much I talk about emotional stakes, and we see those telegraphed here. However, I think this paragraph could stand to step further away from generalized language. It could dig more into specifics. A lot of the phrases like grapple with his desire, carry consequences, and confronting their fears and risking their future, these don't really show us what's going on. Try this test. Can you picture, visualize any of these actions? Not really. This is almost the opposite of the issue most writers have with the emotional stakes in the third paragraph. Here, we have the emotions, but not the specific choices or courses of action that the emotions make so difficult. So I wonder, what does it mean for Yuki to grapple with his desire? What does he do when he's grappling? Can you picture it? And what are the futures they're risking exactly? Now, I think the author knows the answers to these questions. 
And it can be difficult to add details when there's a lot going on because you feel like you're just inflating the length of the query. But don't hesitate to be detailed where it matters. We do have one great specific though, the musical parody of Hamlet. However, like the ex-boyfriend, I think we need to know about this earlier. It's an external goal for both of them, so we should probably hear about it more midway through the plot summary than here towards the end. This could also be a great place for more of that cause and effect language. Something like, when whatever causes the musical to be at risk happens, it's up to Yuki, Tessa, and their lovable group of friends to save it. Next, the bio paragraph that summarizes the book and talks a little about the author's history. Again, it sticks the landing beautifully. We have title, genre, age, category, word count nicely rounded to a thousand words, comp titles, bing, bang, boom. The information about the own voice's representation is important to include and done very nicely. Then there's a writing credit and just a fun little bio fact. Great work, it's very well-rounded. Thanks so much, Melissa. the show. As I promised, I will reveal the author who has gotten representation since the beginning of the query show. But first, very exciting to finish up episode 9 because it means we're almost at 10 episodes, which doesn't sound like a lot, but you have to take your celebrations where you can. And to celebrate, I'm creating an online class all about the first 10 pages of your novel, exclusively on my Patreon. Cleverly, I am calling it The Perfect 10, Nail Your Novel's Beginning. It's a video class where I break down the thought process of an agent reading your sample. Basically like what they're evaluating, what they want to see to keep reading, and the kind of stuff that will stop them. So everyone who joins at the $10 level by February 10th will get access. Plus you get all the amazing other things on there like the bonus episodes, the copies of the queries, the discussions, and the Q&As. So to recap, episode 10, hooray! First 10 pages, $10 patrons by February 10th. It's kind of like that Jim Carrey movie, The Number 23, except with the number 10. Look, I'm an editor, not a numerologist. And here it is, the moment you've all been waiting for, a huge celebration. Congratulations to Lisa. Lisa, you will recall from the very first episode of The Query Show, has signed with an agent. I am very thrilled because her writing is delightful and she completely deserves it. And it's just really exciting to see people I know and have featured on the show get success. So if you sign with an agent and your query has been on the show, or even if you're just a listener, totally tell me because we will celebrate it and brag about you here. So I hope that's good encouragement for you as you set off into the querying world this week. Now you can always find us at thequeryshow.com or find me on Twitter. I'm at a tall order, but until next week, episode 10, I have been your host, Blair Thornburg. Cheers. Cheers.